And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe, which you can see on the homepage of The Other Side of Midnight. This morning's show is going to be, I think, one for the record books, because we're going to try to tackle the big picture stuff, like what the heck is going on. And you may have noticed that our, um, our banner tonight limbs out Washington, D.C., because I know a lot of folks out there kind of shudder when we do things that are even vaguely political. Well, tonight, what I'm going to try to do with my guest, Rick Levine, is to lift the conversation out of the mundane and to look at the bizarreness, the absolutely, positively, never-happened-in-American-history-before bizarreness going on and how it cascades into a whole bunch of other things planetary things, solar system things that are all occurring and coming to a climax. Perhaps, if we have done our analysis correctly, at the same time, this December. December is the month. December is when it's going to hit, as my grandmother would have said, uh, the rotating kitchen appliance. So, before we get to that, however, I want to remind you of a couple of very important things. A few weeks ago, we had a horrible hurricane that sat for over two days on top of the Bahamas. So, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our homepage, click on tonight's banner, which has uh, Washington there under moonlight. That's also part of the equation, as you're going to hear. And uh, Rick Levine's name. That will take you, if you click on that, to the guest page for Rick Levine. Just scroll down a bit to My Items, or you can hit my name in the fast links right under the uh, banner. That will take you to My Items and Radio with Pictures. The first couple, three items are the links. If you want to provide sustenance and relief in incredibly desperately needed help to the refugees and the victims of Hurricane Dorian. You click on one of those. The first link will take you to some horrifying images. I mean, those two islands that that hurricane, the Cat 5, sat over for two days, scouring the ground. I mean, it looks like ground zero if you were in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. In some places, there's nothing but mounds and piles of debris. Thousands and thousands of tons of debris just chopped up like confetti by, I mean, a Cat 5, unless you've lived through one, you have no idea what it sounds like, what it feels like, and what the aftermath feels like. So have a heart, have a real heart for these people who were subjected to something almost otherworldly. And link number two is the medical aid links that you can um, uh, click on. Those include Project Hope. Let me scroll down here. We've got Project Hope. We've got Team Rubicon. That's a bunch of vets who've gotten together who are doing extraordinary work in helping victims. We've got the Bahamas Red Cross. We've got Hurricane Relief. Click on any of those and um, send send money because if you send stuff, um, it's not as useful as if you send you know something that's fungible, which is funds. Funds can be used by the folks on the ground who know the situation much better than we do. 
Um, now, there is one caveat to this, and we're going to be announcing this in the next week or so, maybe two weeks, depends on how long we take to get it set up. There's a stunning technology that we have come across which can help not only the victims uh, of the hurricane in the Bahamas, but in people in disasters all over the world. And as you know, we don't really have commercials on this show. We have, uh, you know, promos for our membership. I want to try to keep the commercials as brief as possible so that you have more airtime to listen to the conversations. I mean, I did Clyde Lewis's show the other night um, for a couple of hours, and I was really astonished at how many hours of commercials you have to sit through to hear a few minutes of conversation. So we never want to drift into that mode, but we're going to talk to you in the next uh, few days, maybe by next weekend, maybe the weekend after, about something which is such a breakthrough and is so needed all over the world. I'll, I'll give you an even further hint. It's something to do with life itself, life-giving itself. And um, when we can, I will give you great details. I'll tell you how you can, you know, get access to it, how you can participate, how you can help people like those in the Bahamas who need, I mean, they need everything. But at the moment, send them funds because uh, funds are, are li liquidity and the, the relief agencies, because they have ground truth, know exactly what these folks need. And um, when we are able to update you as to how you can help more directly through the show, you will be the first to know. So if you continue scrolling down, there's some, some major stuff that's going on, and I'm going to be discussing this with Rick tonight, because from my model, which as you know is the hyperdimensional torsion field cyclic model of reality, things that modulate the field. We know from my measurements, and we know from, you know, millennia of other people's measurements, that yes, when you rotate planets around stars, and you're sitting on one of those planets, it changes the field. And the field, as it's changing, changes what we perceive to be reality. That's basically what we're talking about tonight. That's basically the 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 foundation for this discussion so if you look at link number three uh in radio with pictures under under my items tonight there was an announcement made a few days ago by the chief scientist at nasa's his name is green and he basically is saying that life on mars could be found within two years but the world is not prepared now, does that sound vaguely familiar to you? That's Brookings. That's straight-line Brookings back in 1959, when NASA was first created by President Dwight Eisenhower in 1958 in July, when the Congress basically enacted it into legislation. Um, one of the first things that this fledgling NASA did was to reach out to the Brookings Institution that very famous think tank there in Washington, up the street, kind of, from uh, NASA headquarters. And they gave them a contract under the Long Range Committee of NASA, which, of course, has long since disappeared. And they basically asked Brookings, look at what will happen because of space activities funded by the U.S. government in the civilian sector 
over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years, the, what they call the out years. And they came back with this report. We call it the Brookings Report. It actually has a longer and more complicated title. But if you go to the Enterprise Mission website, that's enterprisemission.com, and you scroll to the very bottom, you'll see a link there. So you can read the entire Brookings Report because basically what Brookings said uh, in a whole bunch of fields from hotels in orbit to communication satellites to weather, you know, forecasts to the discovery of extraterrestrial life. What Brookings said, you know, over 50 years ago, 60 years ago actually now, was that we can't handle the truth, meaning the American taxpayer. And Brookings, if you read the subtext, if you read the appendices, which are also linked in that link that you're going to click on, on the Enterprise uh, Mission website, they said that what was needed from the perspective of the blue ribbon panel of researchers, generalists and specialists in a huge variety of fields from physics to defense to communications to marketing to agriculture to social systems, cultural analysis. I mean, they had, they were able to call in the blue ribbon creme de la creme of intelligentsia in the 50s into this panel including a woman that I worked with, uh, Dr. Margaret Need. I ran into her when I was at the um, Hayden Planetarium in New York City. We were working, of course, at the American Museum of Natural History, and she had an office up in the tower. And if I worked late and I went down to, you know, get a Coke or something, I would bump into her in the hall, stomping around with her big, long cane or walking stick. And we got into these really intriguing conversations. Now, I wish I knew then what I know now, which is her role in the preparation of this NASA report, basically on extraterrestrial life, which said that we could not handle it because civilization, literally, this was her perspective as an anthropologist, that if we learned the truth about our relationship to ETs and the cosmos and who's been here before and who's coming here now, that it would literally destroy civilization. Now you can imagine in the 50s and 60s when this was a shocking new idea, um, the impact it had on policy, not only on NASA, but probably over at the White House, probably, you know, umpteen presidents have followed NASA's lead and that's why we haven't had any announcements from the Oval Office. Oh, by the way, my fellow Americans, <clears throat> we're not alone because the eggheads, as they were called in those days, basically all said, with Margaret leading the charge based on her experience in American Samoa uh, as a grad student watching Western culture destroy the indigenous culture of Samoa. Her prescription, her forecast as an anthropologist that if we encountered really advanced extraterrestrials or even their libraries containing their knowledge, it would suck the life out of our civilization. And scientists, you know, her compatriots, her colleagues, uh, literally wouldn't go into the office the next day because it's like, what's the point if everything we're going to find has already been found and codified by a culture oh, let's say a thousand years ahead of us or something like that.
that turned into the ossified, concretized policy, which I still think is operative both at NASA and the White House and the Pentagon and every other level of U.S., you know, governmental, you know, actions, that if, you know, in, in the words of, uh, you know, that famous movie, that we can't handle the truth. Well, I found it stunning that in the 21st century, in 2019, the year that we have basically forecast that's going to be the beginning of real disclosure based on a whole bunch of other stuff that Rick and I will probably get into at some point tonight. This is the year. So you've got Dr. Green, you know, there at NASA saying that we can't handle the truth and that uh, life on Mars could be found within... I think that Jim Green is way, way, way behind the curve. And I look at this, as I said on Clyde's show the other night, as another harbinger of things to come. I think a la Brookings, they're trying to prepare us for some stunning news. Speaking of news, skip down to the next item. The NASA InSight spacecraft, remember, this is the one that landed far away from Curiosity or Spirit or Opportunity uh, in a place called Elysium, a large kind of flat plane where they could drill into the surface and in place a seismometer as well as listen to, uh, uh, well, what the seismometer is supposed to do is listen to Marsquakes, earthquakes on Mars, called Marsquakes, and a bunch of other stuff. It's also got a magnetometer on the spacecraft, and it's got uh, what's called a heat flow experiment. They were supposed to drill into the surface for this gadget, and it was supposed to kind of claw its way down by a percussion effect to something like 15 feet below the surface and report back the heat energy flowing up from the core of Mars through the crust, through the surface, through the regolith, and then being radiated into space. And they've had real problems mechanically because the surface, the regolith, the soil, the dirt, is not behaving the way they had calculated based on on terrestrial experiments. In fact, they found that there are some very rigid layers right beneath the surface. They're calling it duracrust. But if you look at the hole that they actually dug, because they used the little arm the other day to move the emplacement device that held this mole, this this uh, heat flow gadget. They moved it out of the way so you can see the hole directly. And it's uh, it's not round. It's square. It's got layers. And it's got geometry. So, of course, based on the MRO observations, which is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft orbiting around Mars, with this super telescope that looks down with a really super camera attached to it and sends back stunning images where you can resolve features smaller than a few inches across from orbit. If you look at the context of the InSight lander there in Elysium, I've said on the show many times that uh, it looks like they landed in the remains of an ancient, ancient buried city. How do we know? because of all the geometry. Remember, cities manifest themselves through geometric regularity. That's what Sagan said many decades ago. That's how we tell from orbit intelligent life here on this planet. We look for geometry. Um, So if we find the same geometry on Mars, 
and most of it because of the sandstorms and the long geological cycles has been buried. I mean, it looks to me, and some of my colleagues, we've talked about this, that InSight landed kind of in a city square and may in fact have landed on the roof of an ancient buried building, in which case if you try to drill down and lower a heat probe, you're going to encounter resistance that they obviously never factored in, including maybe but not limited to <clears throat> rebar? Anyway, so the um, the heat flow probe is kind of at a standstill. They're going to try some new techniques in the coming few days using the arm on InSight, this little robotic arm, to kind of press it against the side of the hole so that it might develop some friction and be able to claw its way down. I don't, I don't give, you know, a very high probability of success for that because, frankly, if they're landed on a building and they're trying to get through a roof, good luck, guys. Now, the seismic stuff, however, is really interesting. So if you click on link number four in Radio with Pictures, that will take you to a NASA website, um, which is the InSight website. The headline says, NASA InSight hears peculiar sounds on Mars. And if you listen, there are several links there um, that denote earthquakes they've recorded. <clears throat> they recorded one on Sol 173. Remember, a Sol is a Martian day, which is slightly longer than an Earth day, so they call it a Sol and not a day. That goes back, you know, to Viking. Sol 173, they had a, a quake about 3.7 on the Richter scale. And on Sol 235, they had a quake of about magnitude 3.3. Let's listen to the one on the on the uh, Sol 173. Okay. Cue it up here. This is a Martian earthquake. Earthquake, run! That's it. That's supposed to be a Martian earthquake recorded on Sol 173. Okay. Um, there's something else that's interesting. If you go back to link number four, and I did the wrong thing. There we are. There we are. Um, in April of this past uh, year, you know, early, early spring this year, there was another earthquake. And this one didn't sound at all like what you just heard. In fact, uh, let's play this one and see if you can detect the difference. Now, there's Martian wind you're going to hear. There's movement of the robotic arm, which I swear, when listen carefully, let me give you a heads up, it sounds exactly like something out of the soundtrack to Forbidden Planet. I mean, it's really, really eerie. But in the middle, between the wind and the robotic arm moving, which sounds like... Uh, Forbidden Planet, there is what they're calling a likely Mars quake. But it sounds nothing like 
the one that I just played for you, which was on uh, Saul 1173. This one was on the uh, Saul 128, which was earlier in the uh, uh, cycle after the inside spacecraft had landed, which was back in last, last November. So here's, here's this um, other preceding earthquake, but you'll hear the difference. And then I'll give you a couple of thoughts about why it may sound so different. Here we go. This is the wind picked up by the seismometer. Here comes the Mars quake. And here comes the robotic arm moving. Okay, now I find that really intriguing because that sounds, the April quake, sounds nothing like the ones that they're telling us on 173 and two, um, <clears throat> I forget the soul, hang on, let me get it down here, uh, 235, that they're claiming are Mars quakes. Now, one thing could be different is that they're at different distances. Remember, with one seismometer, you've only got one data point. You can't tell where on Mars, I mean, this could be on the other side of Mars, a really humongous earthquake whose shake, rattle, and roll is vibrating around the crust or through the mantle or even through the core and so you're picking it up so unless you have two or more you don't have a triangulation method so you can't tell where it is here's my bold analysis okay i think the second two the one on on sol 173 and on 235 and that's basically sounds the same so i won't play that i think that those really are mars quakes I think the one, the more high-frequency, different-sounding one that occurred in April, which they have never heard another one like it, you know, since. They've been on, on the surface almost a year now. I think that was, in fact, very close, very nearby. I think it was almost under their feet. And I think it was the collapse of a buried room in the buried ancient city on Mars, in the midst of which InSight touched down. Think about it. If you had an ancient series of structures, and they got buried, and they're hermetically sealed because the atmosphere of Mars is really thin, and you've got to have oxygen and water and all that to keep people alive in any kind of a city on Mars for millions of years, Mars has not been, uh, quoting Elton John, the kind of place to raise your kids unless you have technology. If you had sealed rooms when everything went to hell in a handbasket and everybody died or left and they're sitting there covered, silted over by millennia, by millions of years of winds and sand and dust and the overburden is accumulating first feet, then tens of feet, then hundreds of feet, then maybe thousands of feet, in those sealed rooms deep underground with oxygen and water, you will have corrosion under normal circumstances, normal materials. And eventually that corrosion, coupled with the weight of the overlying 
sands and dusts of millions of years or at least hundreds of thousands will collapse these structures. They will give way. They, they will literally rot away and they will collapse. And when that happens, you will get a tremor in the force. You will get not only a, a, a mini earthquake from the collapse of the room, but all the other structures around that collapsed room, uh, deep underground, will shake, rattle, and roll, and you'll get a cascade of rolling frequencies, high and low. And that appears to be what we're hearing. Now, just so you can detect the sensitivity of this, this gadget, um, this is uh, another link further down on that NASA page. This one is, you, you'll see it, two animations when you click on this. You'll see on the right, you'll see some some superimposed language that says it's the arm, it's the wind, it's it's including its temperature changes in the seismometer itself. When the sun goes down, it gets very cold on Mars. Remember, this thing is sitting on the surface under kind of an aluminum dome to protect it from the wind, but it undergoes temperature changes. And apparently, the, this instrument is so sensitive, they're detecting the differential shrinkage of different parts of the seismometer after sunset, kind of like when you turn off your car and you hear it go clunk, clunk, clunk as it cools and things shrink. Except, of course, this is much, 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 much fainter. This is their fancy music intro. This has nothing to do with seismometer. This is this is NASA doing their little entertainment thingy. Here comes the data. Those are shrinkages in the seismometer. Wind gust, arm move, arm move, big wind gust, arm move, thermal shrinkage in the seismometer, arm moving, more shrinkage in the seismometer. Arm, wind, big wind. Amazing. Just amazing. So have fun with that, you know, and um, I'm wearing headphones, so you can really, really hear it better if you're wearing headphones. So you might want to do that. Um, item number three, I'm sorry, item number five, that was number four, is kind of apropos of what we're talking about tonight, because a few days ago in um, Montana, um, they had a huge snowstorm, a blizzard. And it's it was September. They were bare, I mean, if you look at the picture there, there's a beautiful dog hiking through the snow trying to get to back back home or get away from home I guess like I don't see paw prints in front of him I see them behind him he's having fun but 
this is really interesting. All of these convergences, we're going to talk about more of them as we go through the conversation this morning. All of these convergences leading to item number six. The current president of the United States is probably, the likelihood is quite high that he is going to be impeached. Now, regardless of whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, it's only happened three other times in the entire almost 250 years of American history. So if for no other reason, it, it's important we pay attention. The reason he's going to be impeached, however, is really intriguing because like the founders were concerned, almost overwhelmingly concerned, he is going to be impeached because he apparently violated some precept of the founding fathers themselves. And is this all just randomness? Or is, in fact, is this part of a grand cycle? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Rick Levine will join us when we come back. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Yes, the clock is ticking. Are we at a propitious time in history? Are we literally poised at the brink of something so different, so radically unpredictable by mainstream pundits and critics who are looking at the politics and the up and downs of Washington that they had no idea 
that what they're seeing is part of something so grand, so extraordinary, so paradigm-shattering that in fact it's gotta you gotta kind of get rid of the detritus before the big stuff can really occur. My guest this morning is a professional astrologer since 1976. His name is Rick Levine. He has become a respected leader in the global astrology community, and he is the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered via the Internet to millions of readers per day through tarot.com, and he is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. Rick's Internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month. In 2018, Rick was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamurti Institute of Astrology in Kolkata, India. On a recent lecture tour to Istanbul, Rick was awarded the coveted Fomalat Award for Astrological Excellence by the Turkish School of Astrology. I wonder if uh, Tim Saunders is listening tonight. Rick's current video teachings are available at www.patreon.com slash Rick Levine. And so without further ado, Mr. Levine, welcome back to the other side. Well, Richard, it's good to, I'd say, see you again, but I don't. It's good to be with you again, <laughs> but I'm not. It's good to hear you. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Well, full disclosure, Rick and I, um, now there, there, there's a sound in the background. We have to get rid of that. I'm, I'm hearing myself coming back. Okay, it's gone. Rick and I have known each other, it, it's been decades, hasn't it? It's been decades. I think it was about 1996. Yeah, yeah. And then, because life moves on, my career and professional and personal life and all that took one route and yours took another set of routes and we kind of drifted apart as they say two ships in the middle of an ancient ocean and only in the last uh, year or so have we kind of drifted back together what i find interesting the reason i'm mentioning this is because you and i have not really had a chance to compare notes on our analysis of where we are in the cycles of time from our specific, independent, totally separate frames of reference. And yet, as you're going to hear tonight, we've arrived essentially at the same place. Now, the hallmark of any science is independent confirmation when you approach a problem from different directions. So that's what you're going to hear tonight. Two people talking about stuff that, A, shouldn't be happening, and B, is not understood by maybe 0.00001 of the global population, but C, is going to determine everybody's future, which is why you should pay very careful attention to the next uh, two and a half hours. So, Rick, where do, you, where do you want to begin? Where do you want to jump into this infinite ocean? Well, there's many places to jump into the ocean, but let's find a place that takes us in right over our head. And that's something that you said <clears throat> just about 15 minutes ago, having to do with hyperdimensional physics. Um, and that has to do with how 
when you stir any pot, you create motion around a center. Yep. And we are in a pot that's being stirred in multiple oh my uh, God. in multiple realities. We're in the middle of a hurricane. I mean, that's a reasonable analogy. I mean, we're 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 in a cat five, historically, physically, astrologically, culturally. Well, yeah, yes, yes, we are. But let's let's start out with the fact that that we're always on a point that is being stirred around the apparent central point, the sun, with lots of other things being stirred around it, while the sun itself is moving around another central point, while that central point is moving around yet another, etc., etc. And every time something moves around an apparent center, that creates the illusion of time. Okay. And so we look at things from i mean we've heard you know uh, people talk about the geocentric and then copernicus and the he- and galileo and the heliocentric model but we sometimes forget we live in a chronocentric universe and i mean the we say the universe is 18 billion years old there's only years here on earth going around the sun you know time <laughs> is is created only by something going around something else. And when that happens, all kinds of other mysterious things happen because of sacred geometry and because of the creation of hyperdimensionality. And we're immersed in a higher level field, which is modulated by these rotations and spinnings of masses in three dimensions at least that's something that david boehm talked about but didn't didn't get into it from the same perspective right but his whole implicate and explicate order <laughs> was really about what you're speaking of you said something in some notes you sent to me you you said um well you were you were quoting mark twain but you weren't let me read it exactly quote history never repeats itself but it often rhymes never said mark twain and then it's you true. wrote Twain did write, quote, history never repeats itself, but the kaleidoscopic combinations of the pictured present often seem to be constructed out of the broken fragments of antique legends. That boy sure could write. <laughs> yes. Ah, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah. So talk about the broken fragments. Well, well there's, you know, there's, <laughs> There's so many broken fragments because what we choose to remember, what we remember, and what actually happened are often three different things. Um, I mean, there's a whole piece of the stories that we create from what became mythologies based upon things that apparently, on some level, really occurred. You know, whether we're... Yeah, and for any of your uh, astute listeners who may know anything either about the Electric Universe or about Emanuel Velikovsky, there's another whole rabbit hole about the relationship between legend, mythology, and reality. But the point is that even when we look at modern history, we tell stories based upon timelines, and yet we often look at a timeline strictly through a linear function, putting things in order, you know, of, you know, from the 
birth of Jesus, let's say, which is the alleged origin of our calendar. I say alleged because it's probably off about seven years, but up to the current. And and that's fine. But when we do that, we often miss the magic of the patterns that whether they rhyme or they're bringing out the kaleidoscopic memories of legends, that's where the real magic occurs. Mm. My calculations, by the way, say that the calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is off by about four years. And yeah, the, the general the general intelligent um, uh, assessment is is four to seven years because of known eclipses and um, you know and and things that we can fix dates on. Um, Archaeo astronomy um, relates to history in a very fascinating way because the ancients did notice things in the sky that we moderners can recalculate. So, yeah, I would say it's in there. Well, when Robert and I went to Teotihuacan and then on to, uh, uh, you know, northern Mexico to, to the Chichen Itza, and I was able, under great duress because the federalities tried to arrest me, I was able to measure the Kukulkan Pyramid. That's when my last data point fell into place, and I realized that 2016 was really 2012. And what happened in 2016? What was the shock to the system which still has everybody reeling and the founders spinning in their grave because they forecast this nightmare 240 some years ago and it's now come true? What happened? Yeah. What was the big event? No, nothing, nothing, nothing that any of us can think of. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing dumb. Come on, be courageous. Be courageous. Be courageous. Well, aside from the fact that Uranus and Pluto were making a 90-degree angle with each other, which is a great rarity. Um, it corresponded, obviously, with the um, rise of what Isaac Asimov referred to as the mule in his mm. trilogy, um, which was the mutant who basically was not calculated for and yet allowed for. Ah, very. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but you're right. In the psychohistory projections of Harry Seldon. Yes. Um the mule, i.e., Donald Trump, the wild card, the the, 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 <laughs> yep. the, the radically what president is totally unlike any other president in the history of the country. Now, I would go, I would skip over from Asimov, you know, an old friend of mine, to yes. another old friend of mine, Robert Heinlein. Yes. Remember what Robert Heinlein called this period in American history? When he wrote his future history series? I'm not sure I do. The crazy years. Oh yeah, <clears throat> yep, yep. Well, the crazy years, or, or um, as Timothy Leary called it, the roaring twentieth century. <laughs> <laughs> Except we're now into the twenty-first. That we are. Yep. That we are. But but anyhow, so coming back around though to keep to keep on track, and obviously, um, you know, you and I have done this endless hours just kind of hanging out. We have to remember that we're on radio and we do have a purpose. Oh it's yeah. Oh yeah. There's there's an audience. Okay. So let me get more formal. <laughs> After your wonderful Mark Twain real quote, you know, which I'll do again. History never repeats itself, but the kaleidoscopic combinations of the pictured present. I love that line often seems to be constructed out of the broken fragments of antique legends. And then you sent me this question, is there a hidden mechanism for the cycles of history? Yes, the answer is yes. Super. <laughs> and, and there are probably many 
But, you know, as the Greek philosopher um, Heraclitus said, the hidden harmony is always more powerful than the obvious one. I don't know whether I'd agree there are many. I think there's one mechanism, but as you and I are going to talk later in, in the morning here, it has several different drivers from the local neighborhood, the planetary system we inhabit, to yeah. the grand galactic circa 26,000-year modulation of the precession of the Earth's axis relative to the galactic center, to the 240-million-year periodicity of the solar system's orbit of the galaxy itself. And then there are others. You know, you go to the Great Attractor, you go to the Virgo yes. Cloud... So you've got these incredible lower and lower and lower and lower and lower frequency modulations of what we call reality. Yes, all of that is true. And, and, as, and whenever we talk about uh, frequency modulations, um, I always find it um, imperative to just tip the hat to Nikola Tesla, um, who was the master of bringing the concept of um, modulation and and energy uh, frequency transformation into the modern world and um, and but what you're saying is exactly true that the frequencies grow lower and lower and lower and as you and I have had this conversation before but just in two sentences to bring your readers um, up to uh, snuff um, and that is that what we call planets we see as objects we see the moon as an object it's uh, it was new and it's growing full we see saturn as an object with rings we see we see the planets moving around the sun as objects but what we see are really just the artifacts of frequency modulations saturn is roughly three cycles a century um you know the earth is one cycle a year um it, pluto is four cycles a millennium it takes about 200 almost 250 years for it to complete a cycle and these low frequencies are actually contiguous with the electromagnetic spectrum They're i mean hang on hang else. on hang on do you realize that pluto tonight if you look toward the galactic center it's somewhere hanging out there in, in sagittarius i think it is if you look toward the galactic center in this little incredibly faint 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 dot in a big telescope we now know is pluto because of new horizons it was in that same position when the country was born. It certainly was. We astrologers talk about having, well, we all celebrate a solar return. That's once every year. Astrologers are very aware of a Saturn return, which happens around age 29. And it's a, it's a rite of becoming, whether we're astrologers or not. It's the over 30, under 30 thing. But, but. But the United States of America right now is at the beginning stages of its Pluto return. Absolutely correct. Which has extraordinary implications both uh, in the hyperdimensional model. And, 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 and Richard, there's one other thing as long as we're talking about Pluto tonight. And that is from the Earth's point of view, you know, planets... Uh, um, as they get closer to Earth in their normal cycling, as they get closer to Earth, they look like they stop and change directions. They don't really, but mm -hmm. that's called retrograde. Mm -hmm. And Pluto, basically, from Earth's point of view, is right now what astrologers, um, what's, what astronomers call making a station. Pluto, right now, um, it has been retrograde for the past five months, 
And just a few days ago, it technically turned direct, but because its orbit is so slow, it doesn't move from Earth's point of view against the backdrop of stars for almost two weeks. It's hanging motionless, stationless, apparent motion. And right now, Pluto is at that point, And this is what's feeding or one of the strong feeders to the bizarreness of what's unfolding <laughs> right now on a political level. See, everybody's been wondering why didn't I mean, look, Trump has been in office for three years. I'm going to offend a lot of people tonight. He has committed so many, you know, impeachable acts blatantly in public. If I didn't know better, I'd say his plan, his raison d'etre, was to do exactly what he's doing. I mean, remember back in, in, in the 70s when you had to chase Nixon? You had to get the Supreme Court to demand that the White House yeah. release the tapes and all that. What did Trump do the other day? He released his own tapes. He gave them the <laughs> damn tapes. And then he goes out in the driveway. They keep calling it the South Lawn. No, it was the South Driveway of the White House. And he stands there with cameras whirling and beaming him all over the world. And he says, not only do I want um, uh, Ukraine to look into Biden, my chief you know, running opponent probably, but hey, China, if you're listening... You should get on the stick, too. I mean, he's doing everything he can to get impeached, which was the worst nightmare. He is the president the founders were terrified would suddenly arrive, and he's here, and he's doing everything, as I've said again and again. Why would a president or a presidential candidate keep doing everything wrong unless there was a subtext, some underlying driver that's designed to blow up the system or to test it really 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 test it so you said the other magic word and if we were on your bet your life and groucho marx would say oh down comes the uh duck with the 50 dollars," <laughs> and said you said the magic word the other magic word is test because the other planet that's involved in setting up the unusualness of what's going on astrologically now is the planet that is often referred to as Saturn the tester. Saturn is the taskmaster, the planet that makes us work harder than we can. Saturn is the planet that tests limits. And and Saturn, just a week and a half ago, um, about that, um, also just turned from retrograde to direct. And it's these two planets that are now separated by about five degrees in the heavens, which is close from astronomical points of perspective. But it's these two planets that are now on collision course toward hitting a conjunction at about 23 degrees of Capricorn on January 12th of 2020. And we'll unfold that a little bit. But the other planet involved is the planet of tests, the planet that makes us stronger by testing the limits that then either fall apart or get strengthened. Hmm, sounds very Nietzschean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, for those of us who may not be familiar with astrology, because we think of it as that stupid stuff in the newspaper every day. Wait, you mean the stuff I wrote for 17 years? Yeah, that, that, that stuff, okay. Define, <laughs> yes, we do. Define how these attributes to the angles and phasings and the planets themselves came down to us, why we think of Saturn as this testing thing, why we 
think of Pluto the way you described it. Where where do we get that heritage of assigning attributes to these various, you know, very you know, un, unconscious one would think in current physics, very non-living uh, planetary yeah. objects. Um, <clears throat> well, we'll have to come back to that word non-living sometime, um, or or unconscious. Uh, regardless, where we get that from is from one of two places. It's either from just some sort of intuitive knowledge that that developed over um, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of of um, kind of just being in it and observing and watching the moon and watching Saturn's phases. Um, the mythologies are fairly consistent, whether you go to Norse mythology or Indian mythology, um, East Indian India mythology, um, or Western European Greek mythology. There are similarities, and the planets seem to be correlated with archetypes that have been observed throughout the millennia. Now, that's one possibility. So hang on, hang on, hang on. So we're looking at an historical heritage, millennia, thousands of years, of of basically an empirical pattern matching to where Saturn and Mars, and they, they appear when there are certain configurations, certain things happen, certain characters are born, certain historical events take place, and by smooshing that huge database written in cultures all over the planet together, you can discern this meta-pattern that assigns these um, characteristics to certain objects out there. That is one possibility. We're going to save the second one just for a moment. What you said was very accurate and very true. and, and yet what that happens with all of those, you know, um, moving, apparently moving objects in the sky that are attributed to different archetypal energies, um, they create geometries with each other. And it's these sacred geometric patterns that create the uh, basic tool in the astrologer's toolbox that astrologers call aspects. Um, it's almost like chords, like notes being sounded musically. Um, and um, well, and it's, it's, hang on, hang on. It, it, it's really Kepler's music of the spheres. I it, actually was just I, I, I was going to take that as another sentence. And the other <laughs> sentence I was going to say, say was, Richard, was that when we talk about the music of the spheres in the um, kind of tradition, not just of Kepler, but Kepler considered himself a Pythagorean. Mm. And so in the lineage of Pythagoras and Kepler, and these two guys are really my astrological lineage, when they talked about the music of the spheres, they were not talking in metaphor. They were talking in actuality. And it's turned out that that is correct, that if you take the electromagnetic spectrum and realize that these planets are extremely, extremely, very, very, very ultra, ultra, very low frequency vibrations, that in fact there is a music to the spheres of the planets that we dance to, even though we can't hear it with our ears, because our ears only pick up on frequencies that are between 20 cycles to 40, 50,000 cycles per second. We have no auditory mechanism to hear a cycle that's four cycles every Hmm. thousand years. Now, keep in mind, I'm coming at this from a physics point of view. If astrology historically is empirical, basically looking at patterns, matching patterns, sifting patterns, collating 
signal out of patterns, repetitive pattern, pattern, pattern. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I've tried to approach this from the underlying, how the hell does it work? What's the mechanism? I know I know the answer to that too, or as well as anyone on the planet, perhaps. Well, I, I there, was there, I, I was going to skip but, over. But, but I want to I want to before we go there, I want to say that there were two possibilities as to where all these came from, mm-hmm. and one of them was this empirical pattern-seeking observation of wise men based on intuition and observation over millennia. Mm-hmm. That was the one possibility. The other possibility is the technology was just given to us by some alien species. Meaning it's a heritage. It's some ancient, ancient, sacred library passed down, passed down, passed down, and then it became cultural and it had its own kind of a life of its own. But it was yes, taught to us as a, as a fragment from one of those ancient uh, antique legends that Twain talked about. Maybe, or I'm just saying, or it was actually given to us in its entirety um, by some other dimensional intelligence where life all over the universe may have different planets with different archetypes, but this idea of being part of a system where there are all these different harmonics and vibrations, and as I know you believe or understand that it appears that some of these objects, planets, um, satellites, etc., appear to have been put into place mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. So uh, all I'm saying is, is that we don't know where this stuff came from but we know that it is valid. Well, but we can know at some point, you know, either we find the ancient libraries and it's all there, either ancient libraries on Earth or on the moon or on Mars or whatever, or we reconstruct how it works, which is what I'm trying to do, based on not electromagnetism. Remember, electromagnetism is a secondary field. Yes. The underlying field that we're going to talk a great deal tomorrow night about is the ether slash the torsion field yes and it's the modulations in the torsion field that are doing the uh, dirty work here that are basically determining our our consciousness our lives our cyclic events i mean I, i look back at my life and it's amazing the number of key things that happened on the recurring same date that with robin's death have now all collapsed like the quantum function into a single interpretation and that to me has been extraordinary to kind of realize is going on in my own life so the underlying thing is the modulation of the torsion field yes i i would agree with that okay tell you what we're gonna have a um uh, a break coming up here because we're at the uh, uh top of the hour so I'll tell you what why don't we kind of just kind of hang loose and i'll do a couple things and uh we shall return My guest of the morning is Rick Levine. We're talking about cosmic cycles and what happens when they recur. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.